Father, I thank you. Lord, I thank you for your word that you give us. I thank you, Father, for your mercy and your grace that you give us. I thank you that we live right now, we reside in the time of grace. In the time of good news, Lord, in the time of your gospel. And you saw fit, for whatever reason, to allow us to live in these days. We thank you and praise you. But we know also, Father, that though we live in the time of grace, that a time of judgment is coming. And so we pray, dear Jesus, that as we live proclaiming and speaking the good news, as we have reason every time we gather to, to sing songs of praise, as we have reason, Father, really every moment of our lives to praise you and thank you, I pray that you would continue to motivate us to be speakers of the gospel. Like the lepers that we read about and studied last week, that we would not keep it to ourselves, but on this day of good news, that we would be those who don't hide it, we proclaim it. Because again, Father, we know a time of wrath, a time of judgment, is not far off. Lord, open our eyes and our hearts to your word tonight. Help us to hear and to see what you have for us. Father, I pray that we can just bask in your truth now. With the guidance and the teaching of your Holy Spirit among us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, 2 Kings chapter 10. His name is pronounced Yahoo. Although he has nothing to do with the internet. But he is known for his hard drive. In fact, if you look back at verse 20 of 2 Kings chapter 9, it says, The watchman reported, He came even to them, he did not return. And the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. That's an interesting verse to me because it so well defines the life and the reign of Jehu. So I'll probably slip into saying Jehu because we're so used to, as, as uh, English-speaking people, so used to saying our J's. And in, the, in uh, the Hebrew language, there is no J. Anytime you see a J in the Bible, in the Hebrew, it's pronounced with a Y sound. So it's really Yehu or, or Yahoo is this guy's name. But his name means Yahweh is He. Yahweh is He. And Jehu functioned as the instrument of Yahweh's wrath in his day. He is one who you could say drove furiously. He drives hard. He is a hard man. He is one of the bloodiest kings of all Israel as the tenth king of Israel. He is the bringer, the instrument of God's wrath in these days. And it is not pretty, so prepare yourselves for what we're going to read and study. Immediately after he was anointed king, Jehu jammed his chariot into overdrive and he headed straight to Jezreel. Why? To begin an incredible reign of judgment and wrath. His inauguration day began, as we saw last week, with the killing of Israel's king Jehoram. And then the killing of Judah's king Ahaziah. And it ended with the pulverizing death of Jezebel. You may recall they couldn't find anything left of her but the palms of her hands and her skull. Because Jehu, when she was thrown out of a window, he was sitting atop his horse, and using his horse, he pummeled her to death. And then the dogs came, and there was nothing left when they were through of her, with her. And Jehu accomplished all this before sitting down to a lovely dinner. So this is something of the character of Jehu. And I'm going to tell you a couple things tonight, just to be aware of. We're going to have Cosby coming in and out. Just let him wander. 
He's just a dog. If he starts barking, well then I'll, I don't know, maybe teach him, teach him a little Bible banging. <laughs> He's speaking in barks. Anyway, and the planes, they, they seem to have stopped right now. If they come back, I'll just pause while they fly over and we'll just continue on. So be aware of that. Beginning in chapter 10, verse 1. The reign of terror of Jehu. Now Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria. And Jehu wrote letters and sent them to Samaria to the rulers of Jezreel, the elders and the guardians of the children of Ahab, saying, Now when this letter comes to you, since your master's sons are with you, as well as the chariots and horses and a fortified city and the weapons, select the best and fittest of your master's sons and set him on his father's throne and fight for your master's house. You see, even though Ahab is now a thing of the past, even though he himself had died, they still had a stronghold of Ahab followers there in Jezreel. And so he writes letters, this Jehu, and he says, Stand up for your, for your master Ahab and for his sons. Put someone on the throne. Fight for him. Verse 4, But they feared greatly. And they said, Behold, the, kings, the two kings did not stand before him. They're talking about Jehoram and Ahaziah. Both of them were killed. How can we stand? And the one who was over the household, and he was who was over the city, the elders and the guardians of the children, sent word to Yehu, saying, We are your servants. All that you say to us, we will do. We will not make any man king. Do what is good in your sight. Well, then he wrote a letter back to them a second time, saying, If you're on my side, and you will listen to my voice. Take the heads of the men, your master's sons, and come to me at Jezreel tomorrow about this time. Now the king's sons, 70 persons, were with the great men of the city who were rearing them. And when the letter came to them, they took the king's sons and slaughtered them, 70 persons, and put their heads in baskets and sent them to him at Jezreel. When the messenger came and told him, saying they have brought the heads of the king's sons, he said, put them in two heaps at the entrance of the gate until morning. So you've got 35 heads on one side of the gate and 35 heads on the other side of the gate. Now in the morning he went out and stood, and he said to all the people, You are innocent. Behold, I conspired against my master and killed him. But who killed all these? He's saying, You're innocent of the deaths of the other two kings, but you are complicit. You are as much responsible now for these deaths as I am. In verse 10 he says, Know then that there shall fall to the earth nothing of the word of the Lord which the Lord spoke concerning the house of Ahab. For the Lord has done what he spoke through his servant Elijah. Now if it wasn't in such a brutal area, I would say that's a great verse. This idea that nothing of the word of the Lord shall fall to the earth. Not a single word spoken by God is lost among us. I mean that's a, that's a great way for a church to function. We're not going to skip over any of God's word. We're not going to let any of it fall. We're going to take heed to everything he says. And Jehu had this about him. Man, he, he, was, he was serious about the word of God. And he knew the proclamation against the house of Ahab. And so he went after it hard. But the life of Jehu is a difficult undertaking because this man is a difficult undertaker. He is hard to figure out. One commentator wrote, Jehu himself is an ambiguous character, being at the same time obedient and violent. 
Another commentator wrote, Jehu is temporarily before men the earthly representative of God, of the true God. He is chosen by God, an anointed king on God's behalf. He has scrupulous regard for the word of God and the prophecies of God. He wants to obey these and fulfill them. So he goes on this massive killing spree. King Ahaziah, King Jehoram, the the wife of Ahab, Jezebel, the 70 sons now of this man Ahab. And he killed them all. How can we figure this guy out, especially in terms of one who wants to obey God and fulfill his word? How can this man be an earthly representation or an earthly representative of God? Paul gives us a good word in this regard. Romans chapter 13 verse 1. Where Paul wrote, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except God, and those which exist are established by God. He's saying, so those those governors, those rulers, those presidents, those kings, God set them in place. Don't forget when Paul says this, he's writing to the church at Rome. Do you know who was on the throne when Paul wrote these words? It was Nero. Nero, who at that time was massacring Christians, and Paul had the audacity to write to the church in Rome and say, God put the governing authorities on the throne. In verse 2 of Romans 13, he said, Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what's good. And you'll have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. He is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Now how can we understand that with the character of Nero? Well, we'll talk about that when we get to the book of Romans. But for now, this describes Jehu very well. He's a bloody king. He is a brutal man. And yet... He is, as Paul wrote, a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. You've got to keep that in mind as you watch the life of Jehu and his reign. It is bloody, it is brutal, but he is functioning as the instrument of God's wrath. Look at verse 12. Verse 11, actually. So Jehu killed all who remained of the house of Ahab in Jezreel, and all his great men and his acquaintances and his priests until he left him without a survivor. Verse 12, Then he arose and departed and went on to Samaria. On the way he was at Beth Aked of the shepherds, and Jehu met the relatives of Ahaziah king of Judah. Okay, whose relatives are these? Pay close attention. The relatives of Ahaziah. Okay, these are not the relatives of Ahab, they're the relatives of Ahaziah. Now Ahaziah had been killed by Jehu as well, as we saw last week. But he comes upon these men and he says, Who are you? And they answered, We are the relatives of Ahaziah. And we have come down to greet the sons of the king and the sons of the queen mother. Who's that? They came to meet Jehoram, the now dead king of Israel, and the queen mother who is Jezebel, who also is dead. But apparently these guys hadn't read the morning edition of the Jerusalem Post. (laughs) They're not up to date. Israel's King Jehoram, dead. Judah's King Ahaziah, dead. The Queen Mother Jezebel, dead and unburiable. (laughs) Jehu, wanted for questioning. This group of people are headed now to see Jezebel and to see King Jehoram, not having any idea what has happened. And before these men can react, 
Jehu has them captured and killed. He said, take them alive, verse 14. So they took them alive and killed them at the pit of Beth-Eked. Beth-Eked means the house of binding. And so that's exactly what they did. They bound these men up. And they took them and they killed them and dropped them all down into a pit. Forty-two men, he left not one of them alive. Now when he had departed... Well, hang on a second. He left not one of them alive. Is this guy just a maniacal sociopath? He's just on a rampage to kill people? Or is there a method to the madness? Is there something behind it? A couple things to note about Jehu tonight. He is, number one, the Lord's avenger against the house of Ahab. As we've already said, but if you're taking notes, jot that down. Jehu is the Lord's avenger against the house of Ahab. Now, God's judgment against Ahab's house had been unmistakably clear. If you go back to 1 Kings 21, 1 Kings 21 and verse 21, the Lord said through Elijah the prophet, Behold, I will bring evil upon you, speaking to Ahab, and will utterly sweep you away, and will cut off from Ahab every male, both bond and free in Israel. I'll make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, because of the provocation with which you have provoked me to anger, and because you made Israel sin. Of Jezebel also has the Lord spoken, saying the dogs will eat Jezebel in the district of Jezreel. The one belonging to Ahab, who dies in the city, the dogs will eat. And he who dies in the field, the birds of the heavens will eat. Surely there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord, because Jezebel, his wife, incited him. Jehu is only doing exactly what God said had to happen. He is the avenger against the house of Ahab. Now his slaughter may seem unrestrained. It may seem intense at this point, but we need to see this. Everyone who fell to Jehu's sword belonged to the house of Ahab. It's one of those things that's easy to miss as you're reading through the Bible. You just might think, oh, I've got to get away from this guy because he just kills everyone. Well, the reality is Israel's king Jehoram was Ahab's grandson. And so the prophecy fell on his head. Chapter 9, verse 24 tells us he was Ahab's grandson. Judah's king Ahaziah. Judah's king was also Ahab's grandson, which is why he was killed as well. Jezebel is an obvious one, Ahab's wife and wicked consort. Jehu then takes out the sons of Ahab, as we started off at the beginning of chapter 10. And now these relatives of Ahaziah out of Judah are also related to Ahab. He is destroying all of Ahab's house. And he's not missing anybody. And you might say, well, why are these people judged so harshly for Ahab's sin? I mean, that's hardly fair. I don't want to be judged for my father's sin or my grandfather's sin. And doesn't the Bible tell us that? That that we're not judged according to our fathers or grandfathers, but everyone's responsible for themselves? Yes, the Bible does say that. But we need to understand that paganism ran deep in Ahab's house. Ahab and Jezebel brought Baal worship to the forefront of Israel. It was so bad in that nation that massive numbers of people were following after Baal instead of God. If they had that kind of impact on the nation of Israel, how much more of an impact do you think he had on his own family? Sons and daughters. As they grew up in his household with the idols and the paganism and the witchcraft of Jezebel. She was a witch. I don't know if you knew that. The wicked witch of the north was Jezebel. 
And so this household was a household of paganism. And if Israel had it bad thanks to Ahab, how much more his own household? We can only assume that this judgment was righteous and true, that this whole house had sunk deep into paganism. But we also need to understand something about the wrath of God. And, and this is often what people miss. In fact, if you talk to people typically outside of the church, they like to think of an Old Testament God and a New Testament Jesus as two separate things. People will say, the God of the Old Testament is the God of wrath. I don't like that God. But the Jesus of the New Testament, I like Him. The problem is, they're one and the same God. And God didn't just kind of soften over the years and change His mind. As He was capable of incredible wrath in the Old Testament, so He was capable of wrath in the New Testament as well. You don't have to read far to find that out. But the thing we need to understand about the wrath of God is that though the Lord's judgment is imminent, His mercy is immediate. Now think about that. Though His judgment is imminent, His mercy is immediate. What people will do is they dismiss the Lord's current grace because of His coming wrath. They miss the fact that right now we are in the age of grace. This is good news time. We are not being repaid the sins that we should be repaid for. We are under grace. And God in His patience is waiting and waiting and waiting not to bring His wrath. Giving us as much time as possible, giving this world as much time as possible to come to Him and repent and receive His grace. Though His judgment is imminent, His mercy is immediate. And the same is true in our story. A quarter century has now passed since God's pronouncement on Ahab. He has waited over 25 years to bring this judgment on Ahab's house. Why? So they'd have time to repent. So they would have opportunity to turn from their wickedness. They saw what happened to Ahab. They knew the judgment fell on him. They had opportunity to repent. Decades had gone by since the Lord had warned Jezebel, again, the wicked witch of the north. But she continued to practice idolatry and witchcraft there in Jezreel until finally the hammer of Jehu fell on her head. Because God's God's judgment may be imminent, but His mercy is immediate. He always begins with mercy. That is a standard with the Lord. Throughout Scripture and throughout history, God's mercy always precedes God's judgment. He always says, it's coming, wrath is coming. But I'm giving you a chance to turn toward me and receive grace and salvation. Do you realize the flood, back in Genesis chapter 5, a thousand years before the flood came, God began giving warning that it was coming? Nobody on the face of planet Earth should have been surprised when the flood hit. A thousand years earlier, a man named Enoch walked the face of the earth. Enoch was a prophet. One of the earliest prophets, we're told. Jude 14 tells us about that. Genesis 5. And Enoch began to prophesy, to warn against the coming of the flood. He even named his son Methuselah. Because the name Methuselah means when he dies, judgment happens. Or in dying, the arrow will be shot. In his death, he will sin. And truly, Methuselah died, and within a few years of his death, the flood came. God was warning far ahead of time. Even Noah preached for a hundred years. God came to Noah when he was 500 years old and said, I'm going to flood the world. I want you to build an ark. And I want you to preach about it. And we find out through the word that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And for 100 years, Noah preached, Turn from your wickedness. Repent. Turn back to the Lord. Blood's coming. The warning. 
His judgment is imminent, but His mercy is immediate. He wants to see you saved. That's the way of the Lord. Mercy always precedes judgment. When you're talking to someone about Jesus right now in your life, that's the message you give them. Yeah, wrath is coming, but He loves you so much, He hasn't brought it yet. There are friends and family members, people we know very well, who right now are the reason, I believe, that God is staying His hand. He's waiting because of them. Which makes me want to say, look, accept Jesus sooner so we can go home. It's your fault, dude. God is being patient because His mercy is immediate. John 3.18, Jesus said, He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment. That the light has come into the world. But men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. Well, Jehu reminds us of something, gang. And it's the flip side of what I just said. Jehu reminds us that judgment drives furiously forward. That judgment is coming. Though the Lord's mercy is immediate... His judgment is imminent. We cannot forget that. Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5.3, While they're saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains to a woman with child. That's interesting to me. Because I think it proves our point. A woman with child has known for a while that she was with child. The Lord gives a woman roughly nine months to be ready to prepare for giving birth. And in the same way, the destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child. She shouldn't be surprised that she's giving birth. Just as the world should not be surprised when judgment finally falls. There is time right now to recognize it's coming and to be prepared. We have a warning. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Peter wrote that false prophets arose among the people of Israel, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed... They will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. Because the judgment and wrath of God does drive furiously forward. It is coming. Now Jehu is not quite finished. His judgment drives on. Verse 15. Now when he departed from there, he met Jehonadab, also known as Jonadab. In fact, a lot of times you'll see names with a J-E at the beginning of it, and you can either say Jehonadab or you can say Jonadab. Many names are like that. King Joram is also King Jehoram. But this son of Rechab, Jehonadab, was coming to meet him, and he greeted him, and he said, Is your heart right, as my heart is with your heart? In other words, are you with me? And Jehonadab answered and said, It is. Jehu said, If it is, give me your hand. And he gave him his hand and he took him up into his chariot. And he said, Come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. So he made him ride in his chariot. And when he came to Samaria, he killed all who remained to Ahab in Samaria until he had destroyed him according to the word of the Lord which he spoke to Elijah. He completed the task. He obeyed the word of the Lord to a T, killing every single member of the house of Ahab. Which gives you a feeling of how bad, how evil and wicked the house of Ahab truly was. This Jehonadab is an interesting guy. His name means Jehovah is willing. Jehovah is willing. 
Jehonadab already had a reputation as a righteous dude in Israel. He was well known as a man who took his faith seriously, who had a fierce commitment to the Lord. In fact, he was a leader of a group of people called the Rechabites. And the Rechabites are talked about, and you can look this up in your own time, Jeremiah 35, verses 1 through 14, talks about Jonadab and the Rechabites. And they had a commitment to the Lord. Though the Lord would say, don't get drunk with wine, Jehonadab and his group said, we don't drink at all. When the Lord would say one thing, they took it a step further and said, we're not going to mess with it at all. We're going to be fiercely committed to everything that the Lord is about. And you can read about Jehonadab there in Jeremiah 35. But you might ask the question, why is Jehu interested in Jehonadab? He obviously knew of his reputation. Why does he want him to ride alongside in the chariot as he goes down to Samaria? And the answer is that Jehonadab's presence gave godly credibility to what Jehu was doing. If a man like Jehonadab signs off on this, stands up beside Jehu, then the people of Israel would know this has got to be a judgment from the Lord. It's kind of like, I don't know if you all remember this, but several years ago in the Nixon White House, President Richard Nixon sidled up to one Billy Graham. He called Billy Graham and, and had Billy Graham come into the White House and even had Billy Graham, to, to an extent, advise him about spiritual matters. Billy Graham would later say in his life it was the one time that he dabbled in politics and he wished he never had. He said it should be one or the other, politics or preaching, but not both. And Billy Graham was sorry that he had because, as you know, those Nixon White House, it went down in flames. And for a while it was hard on Billy Graham and the Billy Graham Crusades because following that people were not so sure where he was really coming from. But that's the kind of thing we're looking at here. Jehu and Jehonadab. Jehu is is massacring the house of Ahab. But if he can pull in a guy like Jonadab, well then things might look a little more credible as to what he's doing. But Jehu is not finished yet. He still has a task. He's now wiped out the entire house of Ahab, but he turns his wrath toward another great threat to Israel. Second thing to note, Jehu is the Lord's avenger against the house of Baal. Against the house of Baal. Watch this, verse 18. Then Jehu gathered all the people and said to them, Ahab served Baal a little. Jehu will serve him much. It's a ruse. He says, now summon all the prophets of Baal, all his worshippers and all his priests. Let no one be missing, for I have a great sacrifice for Baal. Whoever is missing shall not live. But Jehu did it in cunning, so that he might destroy the worshippers of Baal. By the way, that word cunning might be familiar to you. It's Jacob. Yaqab in the Hebrew. Because Jacob's name meant heel catcher. And that was Jacob. He was a cunning man. Even when Esau was born, Jacob grabs hold of him and tries to get out first. And throughout his whole life, Jacob's life is a picture of cunning. And this is the word that's applied to Jehu here, Jacob, so that he might destroy the worshippers of Baal. Verse 20, And Jehu said, Sanctify a solemn assembly for Baal. And they proclaimed it. And Jehu said, Throughout Israel, and all the worshippers of Baal came. So there was not a man left who did not come. And when they went into the house of Baal, so there's a temple to Baal. When they went into the house of Baal, the house of Baal was filled from one end to the other. 
And he said to the one who was in charge of the wardrobe, Bring out garments for all the worshippers of Baal. So they brought out garments for them. And Jehu, verse 23, went into the house of Baal with Jehonadab, the son of Rechab. And he said to the worshippers of Baal, Search and see that there is here with you none of the servants of the Lord, but only the worshippers of Baal. Now, we don't want any of those Christians in here. We don't want any of those followers of Yahweh. Let's just make sure it's only... This is just a Baal thing. Okay? Make sure no one else is in here. In verse 24, they went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. And Jehu stationed for himself 80 men outside. And he said, the one who permits any of the men whom I bring into your hands to escape shall give up his life in exchange. And it came about. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, which is interesting to me that Jehu would do that. I mean, it may just be part of his whole ruse, but but why is he now offering a burnt offering to Baal, even if he's just trying to trick the people? But he does. Jehu said to the guard and the royal officers, Go in and kill them. Let none come out. And they killed them with the edge of the sword. And the guard and the royal officers threw them out and went to the inner room of the house of Baal. And they brought out the sacred pillars of the house of Baal and burned them. By the way, interesting note, that word pillars there, the sacred pillars of the house of Baal, Baal worship had as its symbol a pillar or a spire. Which is, interestingly, on an awful lot of churches throughout America, isn't it? What we call a steeple, that originated in Baal worship. We have them all over our churches. How did they get there? I don't know. No idea. The next time you're driving along, you see a pretty little country church with a steeple, just go, I guess that one's for Baal too. Anyway, back to it. They broke down the sacred pillar of Baal and broke down the house. I just like every now and then to share some things that just destroy your picturesque view of life. You know, We do this with Christmas when we talk about where it really originated. I, I like to save that for right around Christmas time just to destroy the holidays. It's, you know, it's fun. Anyway, verse 28. Thus Jehu eradicated Baal out of Israel. Oh, let's not miss verse 27. They broke down the sacred pillar and broke down the house of Baal and made it a latrine to this day. So, little house, little bathroom there. So he eradicated Baal out of Israel. The bloodshed is intense, but again, the Lord had been warning these Baal worshippers for literally generations. Not only the house of Ahab, but even the Baal worshippers, the Lord showed great restraint and mercy before he sent Jehu as a hand of judgment. All of these Baal worshippers knew what happened on Mount Carmel. They knew about it. The fact that that God had licked up the sacrifice that Elijah had offered and that Baal had never showed up. The fact that 450 prophets of Baal had all been slaughtered by the word of Elijah, by the word of Yahweh. Everybody knew this. And it was generations prior. They had a warning. Judgment's coming. Judgment's coming. They should have known. They heard the Lord's warnings from the prophets again and again and again. And what's tragic is so has this world. The world in which we live has heard the warnings. We say, well, it wouldn't be fair for God to pour out His wrath on the world. Has the world not heard? And people might want to plead ignorance, but gain. The word is out. The judgment of the Lord. In fact, the world has so heard about the judgment of the Lord that a typical reaction of a non-Christian person to Christianity is, oh, you're so judgmental. (laughs) I don't mean to be. But the truth is, judgment is coming. 
Wrath is coming. And so it will go, just as Jehu's life shows us, it will go in our world, fatherly warning first, godly wrath later. Fatherly warning gives way to godly wrath. Revelation chapter 16, in fact, those of you who have studied this know, chapters 6 through 19 of the book of Revelation is all about that period of time yet to come called the tribulation. And tribulation is that seven-year period of time where God pours out His wrath on a Christ-rejecting sinful world. And it is coming. And it will happen, just as the Scriptures predict. But listen to this. At the end of that time, Revelation 16, verse 9, we're now into a, a place at this point in Revelation called the bowl judgments, where judgments are being poured out as from bowls in heaven. And the fourth angel, Revelation chapter 16, verse 8, poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was given to scorch men with fire. Men were scorched with fierce heat. And they blasphemed the name of God, who has the power over these plagues. And listen to this. They did not repent so as to give Him glory. Even in the midst of the bold judgments at the end of the tribulation, there is still opportunity to repent. As bad as it will be at that time, as wrath is being poured out, people still could, if they so choose, fall to their knees and say, Lord, forgive me, save me. I give up my rebellion to You. I want You to be my Lord. Please save me. And you know what? God would. He would. But at this point in the tribulation, it will not happen. Because people are so hardened in their rebellion that even though they see all this stuff happening firsthand, they will not repent. You hear it again and again toward the end of that book. Verse 10 of Revelation 16 says, The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became darkened, and they gnawed their tongues because of pain, and they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their swords, and they did not repent of their deeds. Instead of saying, Lord, forgive us, they're saying, How dare you? And the judgment will fall. This to me is one of the most tragic phrases in all of the Bible. They did not repent so as to be saved. The opportunity is there. And anybody, and gang, listen, no matter how dark the sin in your life, no matter how bad your past or even your present, the Lord's grace is still bigger. All it takes is for us to say, sorry. And we can taste salvation. In spite of the Lord's merciful warnings, however, some will refuse to turn around. Now, there's something surprising about Jehu. After he eradicated Baal out of Israel, after he wiped out the house of Ahab, and it was brutal and violent, but you know what? He did what God called him to do. So verse 29 says, However, as for the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel sin, from these Jehu did not depart. <laughs> Even the golden calves that were at Bethel and that were at Dan, in other words, he eradicated the house of, Abraham, of Ahab. He eradicated Baal worship. But Jehu himself was an idolater worshiping golden calves. Incredible. Now the Lord did say to Jehu in verse 30, Because you've done well in executing what is right in my eyes, and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons to the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. So he does get an earthly reward for following through with the word of the Lord, at least in terms of getting rid of Ahab's house and the worshippers of Baal. But, verse 31, Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel sin. And so, verse 32, in those days the Lord began to cut off portions from Israel. 
And Hatzael defeated them throughout the territory of Israel. Hatzael, he was the king of Syria. So he starts to come down and chip away at the territory of Israel. And it says, he defeated them throughout the territory of Israel from the Jordan eastward, all the land of Gilead, the Gadites and the Reubenites and the Manassites from Eroer, which is by the valley of Arnon, even Gilead and Bashan. In other words, Syria took the West Bank. That's what's going on here. Israel is starting to shrink. It's starting to lose territory. This is what happens when the people rebel and reject the word of God. Jehu, as king, eradicates all this other evil, but rather than replacing the evil with good, he continues in evil. He continues to worship these golden calves. It's unbelievable. And this is the beginning of an irreversible turn of events that will lead to the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel. From here, it's all downhill, gang. It just gets worse for Israel. Hosea chapter 1 verse 4 Hosea prophesied around this time and he said that yet in a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel and Jehu could have been known as a great reformer he could have been known as the king who really did what God said and replaces the evil with good but he didn't ironically the very thing he was so zealous against became his own downfall and that sounds a little bit familiar to me be careful because the sins that offend us the most may be the ones that come back to bite us personally the sins that we get on our high horse about the sins that we point the finger toward other brothers and sisters in Christ about oh she is such a gossiper let me tell you about her (laughs) that guy slanders me right and left what a total jerk and the sins that we get on other people about tend to be our sins they tend to be the things that that we are struggling with you know before we speak a word against someone especially a brother or sister in Christ we might want to take a little eye exam we might want to think about what Jesus said Matthew chapter 7 he said don't judge so that you will not be judged and then he went on to tell the parable of a man who goes about with a log sticking out of his eye trying to pick the specks out of the eyes of other people He says, you know what? Check your own eye. Hold up the mirror. How dare you gossip like that? Well, wait a minute. Mirror. Have I ever gossiped? Before you tell someone else that they shouldn't gossip, you might want to check yourself. Hold up the mirror. He is so stingy. Hold up the mirror. How's my giving? She's inappropriate in the way she dresses. Hold up the mirror. What's in my heart that would even make me question Jesus said in Matthew 18 that if your brother sins don't go and talk about him with another brother don't go share it with another sister to get their godly advice don't go say hey we need to pray about this guy over here because he says you go talk to them in fact he says go show him his fault in private if he listens to you you've won your brother if he does not listen to you take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed and that's or confirmed that's important because it's a witness that you take with you not just someone to back up your story but someone who has seen the problems someone who was there who witnessed 
the issue. And you take them with you and then you sit down together and in love you talk about it. And then Jesus says if he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now understand this, gang. This is not the procedural plan for judgment in the church. I've had people ask me that. How do I go about, they won't say it like this, but this is what I hear. How do I go about judging my brother or sister? So Matthew 18 thing, I've got to go first and they won't listen. I get someone else and they won't listen. Then we come to the elders, right? And that's how we get them. No, this is not the procedure of judgment. Jesus is saying this is how you maintain relationships. They shouldn't even have to get to the other two people to bring in witnesses. Do you realize if we would go to a person one-on-one, when we have a problem or a concern, just the two of us alone in private where they can't be embarrassed or called to account by other people, just me and him sitting down talking. So many of the problems that we encounter in church and in our lives would go away. And as a matter of fact, like Jesus said, we would win ourselves brothers and sisters in Christ. There's some respect there. I love you and respect you enough to talk to you about this, but I'm not going to bring someone else in on this right now. This, this is between us. Let's make it right. And when we go with the heart of loving someone and wanting to see a relationship restored, I'm, I'm getting a little bit off here, but, but game, we have a different task than Jehu had. Jehu's task was judgment. Our task is not judgment, it's love. We're not called to judge. That is not my role in this world. Jesus will take care of that. Vengeance is mine, thus saith the Lord. I'm going to leave room for God to carry out His own judgment. As for me, I have been sent to love. Verse 34, Now the rest of the acts of Jehu and all that he did and all his might are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel. And Jehu slept with his fathers and they buried him in Samaria. And Israel king number 11, Jehoahaz, his son became king in his place. Now the time which Jehu reigned over Israel in Samaria was 28 years. Now, that's Jehu's story.